Well, I am really excited to start this new sermon series called The Rise of David. Uh, In the Bible, other than the Lord Jesus Christ and maybe the prophet Isaiah, but even still with Isaiah, I think David wins out as far as the amount of time I've spent, at least in study and prayer, with a man or woman of the Bible. Uh, So Jesus, then David, then probably Isaiah. I just love David. I feel like I know David. I I have come to see how David ticks, what makes him move, and, and what motivates him, and all these things about him, and I just absolutely love David. And I don't think that it's too big a statement to say that without uh, some understanding of David, it's really hard to fully grasp the gospel. David is such a giant of the old covenant, and God uses him in such a powerful way to prepare his people for the coming of the son of David, which is Jesus Christ. So when, I, when we're going through the rise of David, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to see right up to the beginning part of 2 Samuel, and we're going to see the introduction of David today, and we're going to journey with David right up until the time that he becomes the king. And as we do, we're going to learn so much about God just by watching David interact with God. We're going to learn so much about the gospel by the way in which God uses David to further his intention. And we're going to be surprised, I think, on both accounts. The thing about the life of David is he's not a plaster saint. He's not this stained glass window kind of guy that we can just say, well, he was perfect and just be like him. He's not even, in in the book of 1 Samuel, much like the portrait of David that we find in the Psalms or the portrait of David that we find in Chronicles. What we see in 1 Samuel is a no-holds-barred, gritty, raw, peel-back-the-curtain-and-see-David-for-who-he-really-is. And there's so much hope in that for us because God did not pick a man that was righteous. He did not pick a man that was pure as the driven snow. He picked a man who, like us, struggled with sin every day of his life. But a man who, like us, God set his heart upon and loved him and chose him and did great things through him. So that's the goal of this series. Uh, secondly, and this, this goes hand in glove with what I just said, we're going to use this time together as an opportunity to learn the conventions of Hebrew storytelling. Now, when I say Hebrew storytelling, I'm not for a moment doubting the historicity of what we're going to look at. And yet we have to recognize that this book Historical, yes, is written in a particular genre. And this passage or this this section of the Bible that we're going to be looking at in 1 Samuel was written with all of the conventions of Hebrew narrative or Hebrew storytelling, historical story. So I don't, I don't use the word story in an ahistorical sense or a non-historical sense, but it's written as narrative, and we're going to learn what was it that that made a Hebrew narrative a good narrative. And so as we go through, I'll be pointing out, see, this is how Hebrew narrative develops. This is what we need to be looking for. Because what I have found is that we impose modern Western post-Shakespeare 
Shakespearean reading strategies on an ancient text that is not English, it's not Western, it's not post-Shakespeare, it goes back before that. So we have to figure out how were they recounting history? How were they telling stories back in the day? And we we have to bend to their rules and not try and conform the text to our rules. And one of the things we're going to see is there's a lot that the Hebrew... Narrators, narration doesn't say that we think it says and a lot that it does say that we entirely skip over. So we want to figure out what is it that we want to pay attention to? What, what needs to be very clear in front of us and what are we bringing to the text that's not actually there? And we're going to see at least one example of that today. Last thing uh, in our introductory comments is this. You might ask, well, why are we dropping into the middle of the book of 1 Samuel? Why not start at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and work our way through? And I, all I can say to that is because we're focusing in on the rise of David. We're looking at David. And David is introduced in 1 Samuel 16. And let me also add to that that we would be no further ahead to start at the beginning of 1 Samuel because 1 Samuel is not the beginning of this book. The book, you know, what book are we talking about? The Bible starts in Genesis, but 1 Samuel belongs to the former prophets. And we talked about this. If you weren't here or if you have forgotten, go back onto our website and listen to the sermons on the former prophets so that Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings are really one piece of literature. They all hang together. So even if we start at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we're still dropping right into the middle. So if we wanted to start at the beginning, we have to go to Joshua and work our way through. So just a little of context then. So where are we at in the story? The book of Joshua has Joshua bringing the people of God from the wilderness. They've been walking around with Moses for 40 years after having been delivered from slavery. That's the Torah. The former prophets begin with Joshua, brings them into the land. They, they, they take the land by force. The second half of the book of Joshua is just a, a verbal map of the tribal divisions. Then there's a a renewal of the covenant at the very end of the book. Then we have the book of Judges, which shows there's no centralized leadership in Israel. There's no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in their own right eyes. The whole book of Judges is this transitionary period from going in and taking the land to the time when they have a king. And one of the major points of the book of Judges is they need a king. Because things go from good to bad and from bad to worse. And so you get to the very end of the book of Judges and it's just appalling. Uh, God's people have devolved into false worship heretics that are embroiled in a civil war and all kinds of ugly, ugly, terrible things are happening. So we get to 1 Samuel and all of a sudden we we begin to see these seeds of, of of kingship hannah asks for a child she gets one and then she has this beautiful prayer saying that god will raise up his anointed that's all about a king so we wonder is samuel the king hannah's son samuel no it's not and we find out later he becomes the king maker so then for most of the first 15 chapters well at least from from the well, let me say it this way from chapters one through eight it is just affirming that israel needs a king from nine to 15 we see the reign of king saul the first king and he starts off as a great king. Great son, great king. But God's grace is not extended to him, so he is ultimately rejected by God, and that's where we are in the story. So if God has rejected the first king, what are we going to do? 
That's this text. Let me pray, and then we will read the Word of God. Oh God, as we come to look at the life of David, I pray that uh, you would reveal him to us. Help us to see who he is, and in seeing who he is, see with greater clarity who you are and the depth of your gospel and the extent to which you are willing to go to save for yourself a people through the Son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. I ask that you would speak through me, bless this church, glorify your name. And it is in the name of the Son of David, Jesus, our God and our King that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles, 1 Samuel 16. We're going to read the first 14 verses. David has not been mentioned hitherto until now. So now David is introduced. That's what we're looking at, the introduction of David. How does God introduce David to us? That's the question. This is the Word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on him, on his appearance, or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is the Word of God. Oh God, help us to understand it. From this text, I want to draw three observations. And from these three observations, we are going to draw one conclusion. And from that conclusion, we're going to ask one question that lies at the heart of it all. So three observations, one conclusion, which draws us to one question that then will help us to understand our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Observation number one. God, in this passage, tells Samuel exactly, precisely, without question, what to do. God gives Samuel absolutely no wiggle room for his own creativity. He he gives Samuel absolutely no opportunity for his own initiative. You might say, well, okay, I see it. But unless you go back and read 1 Samuel 1 to 15, you may not see it as clearly as you think you see it. And and this is very helpful for us in trying to understand Samuel. It would be a fascinating sermon series on, on Samuel, the prophet of the Lord. Because you see, what's not clear up until this point, and this is, this is Samuel's swan song. After this, we barely hear from Samuel ever again. He makes one more cameo near the end of the book when Saul is trying to conjure up dead spirits from Sheol. Samuel's dead at that point. And you see this toxic kind of relationship continuing beyond the grave between Samuel and Saul. But this is his last real moment to shine in the narrative as he anoints David. But if we went back in in the narrative and looked at chapters 1 to 15, what's not absolutely clear but is ambiguous enough and actually becomes more clear the more you understand how to read Hebrew narrative is this, that sometimes Samuel is speaking for God and sometimes Samuel is speaking for Samuel. And as good evangelical Christians, I say that with some sarcasm, We like to look at Samuel and say, well, whatever Samuel does, he is the agent of the Lord. Therefore, we stamp our approval on anything and everything that Samuel says and does. And that's just not the best way to read the life of Samuel. Samuel, for example, was dead against Israel asking for a king. It was a good request. This is not a, a sermon about Samuel. So I shall not digress any further. But what we must notice here is that God gives no latitude to Samuel. And what we can derive from this, and this is what's going to be important for us, is that what Samuel does here is precisely what the Lord wants Samuel to do. There's no question about it. There's even, there's two divine rebukes in this text. It starts with one. How long are you going to grieve over Saul? Rebuke number one. Rebuke number two, you get down there and and Samuel says, I'm about to anoint Eliab, who looks a lot like Saul. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. And God rebukes him there. No, do not make that mistake again. You look at the exterior, that's not how I'm choosing my king. 
So we know from the way in which this, this introduction of David is crafted, there is no doubt in the text that Samuel is doing precisely what God wants him to do. God says, go, fill your horn with oil. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That's very specific. Don't just go to Bethlehem and look for a king. I'm going to send you to a man. His name is Jesse. He lives in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So all of a sudden, God has whittled down the eligible uh, prospects for king to eight. Because Jesse has eight sons. Continuing on, just take a look at verse 7. When he comes, he looks at Eliab. He thought, surely this is him. God says, no, it is not. And God is very clear. It's not it's not Eliab, it's not Abinadab, it's not Shema, it's not number four, number five, number six, or number seven. Then God is very clear, arise, anoint this one, that is David, this is him. Verse 12. Observation number two. God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to find David. Again, you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's fairly clear, but contrast this with 1 Samuel 9, where God says in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, Samuel, I want you to anoint a king, and Samuel says, okay, and instead of anointing a king, he says, everyone, go home, go home, go home. He wasn't too quick to anoint a king, even though that's what God said to do. So he sent everybody home, and he's off on his uh, circuit. He would go around uh, the countryside, and he would judge. So he would come, and anyone who had conflict, they would bring it to Samuel, and he would judge it. And so he was on his circuit. And so Saul happens upon Samuel. Samuel did not go looking for Saul. This is exactly the opposite. And that's exactly what you want, right? Saul was a total failure. Even though he started off as a good king and he was a good son, and I would argue that he was a good man from earthly standards until he's rejected. But as a king, he was a total failure. So this is the exact opposite. That ought to give us hope. Whereas Saul went to Samuel and was anointed king, now God says, no, I want you to go to David and anoint him king. Another little incidental detail, when Saul was uh, anointed, Samuel reached into his robe and he pulled out a vial of oil. <laughs> sprinkle, sprinkle, okay, you'll be the king, go do this, do that. It just wasn't a lavish anointing. It, you could see it just in the way in which Samuel anointed Saul, he wasn't that excited about it. It was hesitant. It was reluctant. It was, it was sparse on the oil. At the very beginning here, he says, I want you to go to find my man. Take your horn, which is the horn of a bull or something, and fill it with oil. Vile horn. Saul comes Samuel goes. This is the exact opposite anointing from Saul, which should give us some hope. Observation number three. David is entirely passive. Note this, because in 1 Samuel 17, which we'll take a couple of weeks to look at, because it's a long chapter, it's, it's the second introduction of David. So there's two introductions to David. And in chapter 17, David is entirely active. But in this chapter, 
David is entirely passive. He does not initially come to the sacrifice. So there's this gathering where Samuel's going to anoint the next king. David's not even there. In this whole text, does David say anything? No. We have to wait to chapter 17 to get David's first words. And then thirdly, notice what the Spirit of the Lord does. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 14, departs from Saul and rushes upon David. Again, passive. He receives the Holy Spirit. He receives the anointing. He receives the invitation to the sacrifice. And he just dutifully sort of comes along. If this was a movie and we were watching, this is the extent of what that actor would have to do. Oh, sheep, sheep, sheep. You know, eat some stuff. Oh, you want, okay, I'll come. Comes. Comes to the sacrifice. He doesn't say anything. He's looking around. Samuel dumps a horn of oil on his head and then the Holy Spirit rushes upon him and seen. Like it's, not, it's not hard acting. David is doing very, very little. So those are our three observations. Number one, God tells Samuel exactly what to do. God is the active one and God through Samuel who has not always necessarily done what God wanted him to do. Observation number two, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to find David. And this is in contrast to the future king coming and finding Samuel. Number three, David is entirely passive. He receives. Receives the invitation, receives the anointing, receives the Holy Spirit. What then can we conclude from these three observations? If we were to draw this chapter, and some of our youth have that opportunity to draw something from the chapter, this would be a good thing to draw. This chapter is entirely vertical. What we're going to see in chapter 17 is chapter 17 is entirely horizontal. You've got people running back and forth. You've got David running toward Goliath. You have you have Goliath coming at him with a spear. You have him throwing a stone. You have a lot of dialogue in that chapter, a lot more than here. But here, it's, it's all vertical. God sending a prophet to Bethlehem to find a family, to find a son. God is the active subject. Samuel is God's instrument. And the family of Jesse just reinforces this vertical quality to this chapter. Because what we have here is God sends Samuel to Jesse, and then Jesse brings his son to the prophet in order of their birth. That reinforces this vertical feel. Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, then number four, number five, number six, number seven. You see, you see how we're drawing a chain from top God to bottom, David? So, so this chapter is, is saying something about, wow, God wants to anoint a king, and he's doing it from the top down. No matter what else we say about David in this sermon series, this much is clear. And I really believe that this is why David is introduced this way, especially when we get into chapter 17, where we're going to almost say the exact opposite, and that makes David a very complex character. But here, for the purposes of today, what we have to conclude, there is no way that we cannot conclude this. This is the whole point of how this came about Conclusion is this, David is God's choice. 
David is God's choice. There was no politicking. There was no posturing. There was no lobbying. There was no room for error. There was no room for question or doubt. God has chosen David. That's what this passage is all about. Now that leads us to this question. Why? Why did God choose David? And this is where theology begins to take root, right? The way we answer this question is going to shape our entire theology of the gospel. This is where I want us to be very careful. Did and we're just using the biblical text in front of us to answer this question. Did God choose David because he had a good heart? I don't know what you've learned about David, but I'm willing to guess that most of us have been taught that God chose David because he had a good heart. And we would go to verse 7 to make the point in this passage, wouldn't we? When Samuel thought that Eliab was the Lord's anointed, the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7, Do not look upon his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, that is Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ah, okay, I get it, I get it. Samuel was going to anoint someone because he looked like a king. God is going to anoint someone because he has the heart of a king. Is that what the text is saying? Then we have that other passage, right, where we're told that David is a man after the Lord's own heart. Oh. So what we, what we conclude then is we say God was up in heaven and he was looking down for a king. He just saw a bunch of sinners. Ah, oh, but there's one. There's one tending the sheep. Nobody's noticed him, but I've noticed him because he's got a good heart. Let me ask you this question in order to answer this question. Anywhere in the text, does, does the text say that God chose David because he had a good heart? Do, does the text at any place describe David's heart? What is the only description that we get of David in this passage? Verse 12. Remember verse 7. I have not chosen him. Man looks on outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Okay, so, so we, we expect the runt of the litter to come through. We expect the ugly duckling to come in. But that's not what chapter 12 says. So he sent and brought David. And this is the first description we have of David. He was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. He had a great exterior. What we're going to learn about David as we go through the text is that he was also a big man. He was a big lad. He, he was big. It doesn't say that here, but elsewhere, and I'll prove it to you in the weeks ahead. We're not looking at a small little boy here. We're looking at an above average, a stronger than usual kind of man. 
A man that could put on Saul's armor, and it, it was not a ridiculous suggestion. A man who could then take Goliath's sword and use it throughout his career because he was strong enough to wield the, the sword of a giant. David is big, doesn't say it here, but we learned that. Those are two, I gave you two pieces of evidence for that. He's good looking, and he's got a fair complexion. He's got red hair. So if you're a redhead, all our redheads are gone today, I think. We have a few of them. Oh, there's, there's one. Good. He had red hair, Josiah, and that's a really good thing because it was rare. There weren't a lot of redheads in Israel, and so he stood out. And so the only description that we get of David was that he had a great exterior. So Eliab was impressive looking, but God had not chosen him. David too was impressive looking, and God had chosen him. So we're no further ahead. The Bible at this point does not describe David's heart. The truth is, God does not reveal why he chose David. We don't get that answer. And so we would be supplying an answer that is simply not there. Whatever reason, God decided to bring the Messiah into the world through David. We know that David becomes the messianic king. And so the question, why David, is the same as the question, why Abraham, why Isaac, why Jacob, why Judah? And in all of those instances, it's a little bit more clear that they are scoundrels, sinners. God is working with sinners to bring about his plan of redemption. And you know what? We don't get good answers for why he chose Abraham, but we know that he chose Isaac, not Ishmael. We know that he chose Jacob, not Esau. We know that he chose Judah, not Joseph. Why? The Bible doesn't say. He just did. God has his reasons. He said, this is the line that I'm going to work with, and that's all we know. And as we go through this series, what I'm going to show you is David, and David knows this. We went through Psalm 51 not too long ago. Create in me a clean heart, O God. In 2 Samuel 7, which is not going to be a part of this sermon series, uh, God says, I'm going to do great things. Your son is going to build a house for my name. He's going to sit on your throne forever. David, in that prayer, says, I have no idea why you've done this. It's not because of me, but you have chosen to set your heart on me, O God. So, at the very beginning, what we have to know is that this chapter introduces David without question as God's choice. Why? We just don't know. But there is much evidence in the weeks ahead that will show you that it is not because he had a better heart. Which brings us to the hope that we have in the gospel. You see, David's story is a lot like our story. Here's the problem. If we conclude God chose David because he had a better heart, then God, that's how God chooses people. He chooses people because they have good hearts. Which means that if you're chosen, it's because you have a good heart. So then when you really look into the mirror and you see yourself for who you are, and you conclude, apart from Christ, 
I don't have a good heart. Well, God chose David because he had a good heart. So maybe God hasn't chosen me. You see the danger? The danger of saying that in some way, shape, or form, David earned God's choice is that it makes it devastating for the rest of us. It also adds that further complication that we say that there is a twofold gospel. There are some, like David, who merit God's favor, who, who somehow, because of who they were, have done something for God to look down and say, there's a good one, I choose him. But what did Jesus say about this? Like, don't believe me, believe Jesus. Good teacher, why do you call me good? No one's good, but God so if Jesus is telling the truth, David couldn't have been chosen because he had a good heart. We, like David, were nobodies in the middle of nowhere doing nothing of eternal value. We can make a lot of David being a shepherd. Oh, that's good. He got good training with those sheep. That's true. It, it's a motif that God uses that he chose a shepherd. But do you know when, when God later in the prophetic literature says, did I not choose for myself a king from among the pasture of sheep? He's not saying, I looked down and saw a noble man doing a noble thing. I took a nobody in the middle of nowhere doing something of no significance and I made him king in Israel. And if I can do that for him, I can do it for you. God says, I, I take nobodies and I make them into somebodies. You see, we, like David, were sought out by God. You know what I love about this? I made, I made a point of this, that, that David was God's choice. God was the active one. God gave his prophet absolutely no room for wiggle room. He says, I want you to go to this place, to this family, to these sons, and choose the eighth one. It's very specific. God is the active one. And so we, like David, were not active in our choosing of salvation, but God sought us out just as he sought out David. And then we, like David, were called to the sacrifice. What's, what sacrifice? Do you know what? The moment you put your faith in Christ, you are standing at the foot of the cross? And you took the blood of the Lamb of God and you applied it to your life and in that application by faith, the grace of God anointed you and the Spirit of God rushed upon you. Some of us, like David, are ruddy. Josiah. Some of us, like David, have beautiful eyes. Some of us, like David, are handsome, pretty. We have impressive exteriors. And others of us, not so much. But all of us, like David, were God's choice. Why, then, did God choose us? This comes to the heart of the gospel. God doesn't look on the exterior, but on the interior. So only ugly people can be saved. 
only people with good hearts can be saved? No. Why did God choose us? The same reason that He chose David. And He has chosen not to reveal why, except that He did. That He chose to do it in love. It was His choice. It was His love. Which means, and is the implication for us and for David, we're going to see this in David's life. Everything that I've said today, because it had nothing to do with David, and because it has nothing to do with us, when David sinned and sinned deeply, God didn't remove his choice. How awful it would have been for David when he sinned with Bathsheba, and killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, uh, Uriah the Hittite, if it had been because of David's heart. Because then he would have disqualified himself. But knowing full well what God, David was capable of and what David would ultimately do, God nevertheless chose him. Likewise with us. If it is entirely God's choice, and if God knows the end from the beginning... If he has seen your days and my days, if he has looked into our hearts and seen what is really there, if he knows every thought that we have had, if he knows every sin that we will commit, and he still chooses us, then the anchor will hold beyond the veil, and he will not let go on our worst day. He's chosen you. He will not unchoose you because it was never about you. And your goodness, your heart, your merit. It's always been about Him. His choice, His grace, His love. Now, you might ask me, but what about Saul? Verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and rushed upon David. So couldn't that happen to us? No. Why? God had his reasons for using Saul for a season. But he never chose Saul the way he chose David. That's what today's text makes clear. We don't have time, but the contrasts between the anointing of Saul and the anointing of David are there for a reason. And we, if we are in Christ, we're not chosen like Saul for a season, for God to make a point. But if we are in Christ, that's a big if, then he chose us the same way he chose David. And our selection is secure. Praise be to God through the son of David. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you chose David. He was impressive looking. He, would, he looked like a king. But you chose him because you chose him. His outer appearance had nothing to do with it. And Lord, likewise, we thank you that you have chosen us. We, we have brought nothing to our salvation. We are poor in spirit entirely needy. We were 
nobodies in the middle of nowhere doing nothing of significance and you have made us children of God. Names written in the book of life in heaven. A place in the new heavens and the new earth. And everything we do has eternal significance because of Christ. Lord, thank you. In the name of the Son of David, our King. Amen.